be, I'd ask you to take your Bibles, turn along with me to Psalm 130. This morning we're going to be talking about crying to God out of the depths. When I was, I don't know, about a freshman in college, I had the opportunity to go on a mission trip with my church to the island nation of Grenada in the West Indies, just north of Trinidad and Tobago. I know, a rough location for a mission trip. But knowing that we would have one day at the beach as a team, a friend and I decided to get certified to scuba dive. And so we did. And so on my first dive, we did a wreck dive, a dive of a cruise ship that had sunk in the 1960s or so. And it was amazing. We didn't go all that deep. We didn't go into the wreck. You know, if you're a master diver, you're going, <gasps> your first dive, you did a, a wreck dive. No, we didn't. We just swam around it, you know. We stayed far away from it, but it was amazing. Even though we were only at a depth of about 40 feet or so was significant enough that you had to, you know, of course, clear your mask and head to equalize the pressure as you descended. That's my only dive. <laughs> Turns out you got to go to expensive places to do that. So, But the ocean is, in many places, far deeper than just 40 feet. In fact, the deepest place in the ocean is the Mariana Trench. And the deepest place in that trench is called Challenger Deep. It's almost seven miles deep. Now, Mount Everest is almost six miles high. And so if you put Mount Everest at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, you'll still have a, a mile of water above that great Mount Everest. At, at that depth, there is no light, and the pressure, the forces exerted, are incredible. And yet, mankind has gone there. Explorer and filmmaker James Cameron was able to descend to the bottom of Challenger Deep in 2012 on a solo dive in a specially designed submersible. And he lived to tell about it. The pressures at that level are eight tons per square inch. That's a thousand times the pressure that we experience at sea level. Tragically, the same successful journey could not be said about the five souls who recently perished on board the Titan submersible. Unless you were living under a rock, you heard about that. These five souls were visiting the site of the Titanic wreck, which lies at only 2.3 miles underwater, only about a third of the distance. The submersible suffered a catastrophic implosion, and all aboard were killed in an instant. So what made the difference between these two journeys? How could one submersible descend almost seven miles deep 
and returned safely, while the other descended only a third of that distance and was crushed. What made the difference? Well, it seems that careful preparation and extensive equipment testing made all the difference. This morning, we're going to be talking about our own descent to the depths, spiritual depths. The spiritual depths of anguish and sorrow and even, at times, despair. Spiritual depths caused sometimes by our own sin or the sin of others. Sometimes caused by disappointment or disease or a death of a loved one. The spiritual deeps where it is cold and dark and lonely and the pressures are often immense. How can we survive such a descent into the depths of sorrow and anguish? Well, the psalmist in Psalm 130 is going to guide us to these depths and bring us back again. And in the process, we're going to learn how to survive our own time in the depths. So look with me at Psalm 130. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. The psalmist says, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Hear the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful for your word once again, which safely takes us to places we don't necessarily want to go. Forces us to think about things we don't necessarily want to think about. Times of sorrow and discouragement and despair. Descending into the depths as most every one of us will experience at some point in life. But Lord, how good you are to take us there safely. And bring us back again, teaching us all the while how to do so and remain with trust in our great God. Grow that trust, that hope in us today through your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 130 is the 11th psalm in the 14 Psalms of Ascent starting with Psalm 120 and extending through Psalm 134. These psalms of ascent were often recited, most often sung by pilgrims who were making their way up to Jerusalem, which, coming from pretty much anywhere, any direction around Jerusalem, requires you to go up, requires you to go uphill, because Jerusalem was built on a high ridgeline. So when people went up to Jerusalem, they really were going up, up, up in elevation. So Psalm 130 is one of these psalms of ascent. 
a psalm of anticipation, a psalm of preparation, a psalm of climbing up. And so it's ironic that this psalm of ascent begins in the valley of anguish. Also, the sixth of seven penitential psalms, psalms of penitence, psalms of confession, psalms seeking forgiveness. Luther called this psalm one of the Pauline psalms. Someone stopped me today and said, I see the psalm that you're preaching today sounds a lot like Romans. Well, it does. But this is not the equivalent of me preaching through Romans. So just so you know, you don't get a pass for that. (laughs) Yeah, so Luther identified it as one of the Pauline Psalms because it deals so directly with sin and guilt and forgiveness and redemption. Even though Paul, of course, didn't write it. We don't know who wrote it. But in it, we're going to learn how to maintain your trust in God while descending to the depths. Five helps we're going to see this morning. Five helps for ascending out of the depths of anguish and despair. Five helps for ascending out of the depths of anguish and despair. The first help we see is this. Understand that Christians can descend to the depths. Christians find themselves in the depths of sorrow and anguish and even despair at times. The psalm begins at the bottom, in the deeps, in the cold darkness, with the crushing pressure. The psalmist says, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. He uses the language of the deep here. This is similar to other biblical references to the depths, both of which refer to the deepest part of the sea. It's a picture of adversity and trouble. Psalm 69.1 uses the same language. Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire and there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters and a flood overwhelms me. I'm weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. That's a testimony of a person who's been to the deeps. Psalm 69, 14 and 15, a little later on in the same psalm, says this, Deliver me from the mire and do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. May the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me. The term depths occurs five times in the Old Testament, always with a negative sense of distress and anguish, accompanied by a sense of dread, of imminent destruction and death. It's a picture of the chaotic abyss where a watery grave awaits us. It's a picture of us being at the end of our rope. Of hitting rock bottom. Jonah experienced this same sense of dread and doom from inside the belly of that great fish that swallowed him and took him literally to the depths. Jonah experienced both the literal depths and the metaphorical depths. 
Jonah chapter 2, let me read it for you. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. And he said, I called out in my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol, the grave, and you heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I've been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its, with its bars was around me forever, but you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Jonah knew what it was to go down to the depths. The takeaway here is that Christians sometimes descend to the depths of anguish and despair. Sometimes we find ourselves there on the bottom because of circumstances around us that seem overwhelming. Sometimes we find ourselves in the depths because of some serious illness or a wayward child or a broken relationship or financial challenges. Sometimes we descend to the depths because of our own disobedience and sin and stubbornness, foolish choices which have led us deeper and deeper into danger and despondency. Sometimes we can find ourselves in the deeps and we don't even really know why or how we got there. But we're struggling to find hope in the midst of the cold darkness and the crushing pressure. Genuine Christians can find themselves in the depths of anguish and despair. Elijah got to the point of not wanting to live anymore, asking God to take his life. Job, too, came to the point of anguish of soul that he didn't want to live anymore. Moses asked God to take his life. David felt as if his bones were wasting away as he kept silent about his own sin. Jeremiah wished he'd never been born. Paul, too, felt this way at times. In 2 Corinthians 1.8, he writes this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. That's the great apostle Paul. Well, what about Jesus? Surely he never got to that point. Surely he never descended to the depths. Surely he stayed on the surface with all the daylight and oxygen and beautiful weather. Surely that was Jesus' life. Well, turns out it wasn't. Mark 14 records for us Jesus' travail in the Garden of Gethsemane on the eve of his crucifixion. He said to his disciples, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Those are the words of a man who has descended to the deeps. Luke says that Jesus in his anguished prayer sweat great drops of blood. Christians can find themselves at times in the depths of despair. 
I think that's really helpful to know. Actually, Christians aren't just shiny, happy people. Christians aren't just people for whom everything is oakley doakley, never been better. Christians are not people who just float above all the troubles that others seem to have. We have troubles too. Troubles that sometimes take us to the very depths. Psalms are full-throated testament to and endorsement of the full range of human emotions that Christians will sometimes experience. From the lofty heights of joy-filled exuberance to the darkest depths of soul-crushing despair. So remind yourself, when you find yourself in the deep, in the depths, that it's okay that you're there. Doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. Doesn't mean that you've lost your faith. Doesn't mean that you're a failure as a follower of Christ. Life in a fallen, broken world, inhabiting these still fallen fleshly bodies that we do with fallen thinking and limited understanding of what God is doing means that sometimes we will find ourselves in the depths of despair and anguish and sorrow. And it's okay. It's okay you're in the depths. You just don't want to stay there. Amen? You don't want to stay there. And that brings us to our next help. When in the depths, cry out to our ever-attentive God. When you're at the bottom, cry out to God. Look at verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. When you're at the bottom, it can feel pretty lonely. Like no one knows, no one cares. It can even feel at times like God doesn't really know and that God doesn't really care. While you're struggling in the depths, it can seem that God is distant, that He's silent. After all, isn't God enthroned in the heavens? Isn't He in the highest heavens? That seems a very long way from the depths of anguish and despair. But that perceived distance doesn't stop the psalmist from crying out to the Lord for help. He does so because he knows that the Lord promises to hear the cries of his children. Psalm 34, 17 and 18 says, The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. He's near and he hears. Psalm 145, 18 says, The Lord is near to all who call upon Him. He's never far away. He's near. He's right there. He's actually descended to the depths with you. You're never alone. He hears and He's near. 
The reality is God promises to come to us whenever we cry out to Him in humble reliance and desperation. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. See, God is able to dwell in both places because He's omnipresent. There's nowhere you can go from the Lord. He dwells in the high and lofty places and He dwells with the lowly and the contrite in the midst of the depths. The psalmist knows this about God and so in the depths of his despair he cries out to the Lord because he has nowhere else to turn. And the one he cries out to is both the Lord, Yahweh. You'll notice that that first reference to the Lord is in all caps. That means it's Yahweh, the covenant name for God. The special name that God revealed to His people. And He is also, as the second Lord shows, Adonai. Lowercase. The sovereign king of the universe for whom nothing is too difficult. He is both Yahweh and Adonai. The Legacy Standard Bible brings out these two names of God very clearly. Psalm 130, verses 1 and 2, Out of the depths I called to you, O Yahweh, O Lord, hear my voice. The psalmist cries out, Lord, hear my voice. Here again, Lord is Adonai, Sovereign Lord, Master, reflecting the humility and dependence of the psalmist, looking to God as his Master. Understanding that the psalmist is a servant of the Master and dependent on the Master for everything, but especially for deliverance from the depths. Psalm 123.2 says, Behold, as the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a servant girl to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to you, Yahweh, our God, until you are gracious to us. We are looking to you, as a servant looks in dependence upon his master. We look to the Lord, Adonai, as our master, in total dependence on him to meet our needs and to bring out about our deliverance. We have no power on our own. We have no ability on our own, no strength on our own. Only our master can deliver us. Verse 2 continues, Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. The psalmist is asking God to hear his voice. The word supplications here is more literally, Hear my cry for mercy. Now, of course, God is a spirit. He doesn't have a physical body like we do. So this is an anthropomorphism using descriptive language of human anatomy to describe God in terms we can understand and relate to. So the Bible talks of God having hands and arms and eyes and here ears to hear with. 
We see this again and again. Psalm 102, verse 2 says, Do not hide your face from me in the day of distress. Incline your ear to me, Lord. In the day when I call, answer me quickly. Psalm 141, O Yahweh, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. So this is a desperate call for God to hear from heaven, to hear from the depths, to hear from the deep. And to respond. And it's all based on God's promise to listen, to hear, and to respond to His people. Isaiah 58, 9 says, Then you will call and Yahweh will answer. You will cry and He will say, Here I am. What a great promise, beloved. You will cry out to God and He will say, Here I am. I'm right here. I'm right here by you. I'm right there with you. God promises to hear us when we call on Him in humble dependence. In fact, the only circumstance in which God says He will not hear us is this in Psalm 66, 18. If I regard wickedness in my heart, what? You know that one? The Lord will not hear me. If I regard iniquity or wickedness or sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear The issue here is treasuring some sin while seeking God's help. You want to hold on to the weight of sin and somehow float to the surface. Doesn't work that way. It's not saying that we have to be completely sinless for the Lord to hear us. Otherwise, we'd have no hope of ever being heard by God. Ever. The issue is continuing to cherish and nurture sin, to not repent of it and turn from it, to let go of it when you're at the bottom. It's the prayer of a heart of brash hypocrisy. And that prayer the Lord will not hear. But in all other circumstances, when we come in humble dependence and a heart of sincere confession, letting go of Stubborn sins, the Lord will hear us. And we can be confident of that. That's His promise. So cry out to God from the deep, and He will hear you. A third help. Remember, when you're in the depths, that our most dire dilemma has already been fully resolved. Verses 3 and 4. Psalm 130, verse 3 says, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? This seems to indicate that one of the main concerns of the psalmist here is his own guilt and his own sin. He's overwhelmed by the pressure of his own guilt. He knows his heart. He knows God's law. He knows God's holiness. And he knows how far short he falls from God's righteous standard. So like a mighty torrent, a wave rushes over him. And he can't stand on his own two feet anymore. And he's washed overboard. And he descends to the depths of despair all over the weight of his own sin and guilt. Verse 4. 
He says, Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? If God is to keep score, if he should make a mark in his divine ledger book, every time that I sin, well, we're going to need a bigger book. If we're honest with ourselves, right? Is that right? That is right. That leaves us rightly feeling helpless and hopeless under the crushing pressure of our own sin. Oh Lord, who could stand? Iniquities here in the Hebrew can refer to something that's bent, something that's twisted, something that's got an unnatural curve to it. That's what our sins are. They are the bent and broken and twisted bits of our life. Our iniquities are all the places where we have turned aside from the Lord's straight path and gone down the crooked path of our own way. And we're all guilty. The picture here is of a courtroom with a mark being placed next to our name every time we commit a sin. And every mark that goes into that book is yet another proof of our guilt and another call for our just condemnation. And the result is we are unworthy to stand in His presence. We can't stand there. The gaze of His holiness will consume us. We have met our end. It's like Isaiah in Isaiah 6. Woe is me! I am undone! For I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. If we were to stand before God in the bright light of His holiness on our own, all of the darkness of our hearts and lives would be exposed and justly judged and condemned and we would be destroyed. And if we were to end the psalm here, we would have no reason for hope, no expectation of help, and nothing of any substance to raise us out of the depths. But thankfully, the psalmist doesn't end there, does he? Let's read it again, but this time let's add verse 4. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. Ah, in the midst of the darkness, we begin to discern a light off in the distance, and the light gets brighter and brighter the closer it comes to us, dispelling the darkness. When I put my eyes on my sin and my circumstances, there is darkness everywhere. But when I put my focus upon the Lord and His goodness and His mercy and His grace and His kindness and His forgiveness the darkness begins to flee. But with you there is forgiveness. What a sweet and powerful contrast between verse 3 and verse 4. A contrast signaled by that wonderfully contrasting word, but. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said about this glorious contrast and this sweet word, but. He says this, but. What a blessed but this is. One of the most blessed buts in the Word of God. But with you, 
there is forgiveness. I can think of a few other blessed buts like that. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. But God, being rich in mercy, saves us. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The psalmist takes great hope in the fact that despite his great and many sins, there is forgiveness with God. Notice it doesn't just say that God grants forgiveness or that God forgives, but that with God there is forgiveness. Wherever God rides, wherever God goes, forgiveness goes with Him. Forgiveness is always in tow. Forgiveness is always strapped to His side. Wherever God is, there is forgiveness. The idea here is that forgiveness is an intrinsic part of God being God. Forgiveness is what God does because forgiveness is a part of who God is. When God revealed Himself to Moses, He revealed Himself supremely as a God of gracious forgiveness. Moses asked for a special revealing of God's identity to him. And in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, we read this, The Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed. This is God's calling card. This is how God chose to reveal himself to Moses. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Now that last bit can leave a sour taste in your mouth, but it's not intended to overwhelm the first bit. The last bit qualifies the first bit. And the first bit is that the Lord God is fundamentally compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. He keeps loving kindness for thousands. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Hallelujah, what a Savior. What a God. Nehemiah 9.17 describes God this way, You are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. This forgiveness is extended that the Lord may be feared, the psalmist says. This fear, of course, is the fear of reverence in the context of a close relationship, a close loving relationship, where it is the reverence of a servant to his master, of a creature to his creator, of a sinner to the Savior. God's forgiveness does not result in complacency on our part or lawlessness or some kind of flippant, casual approach to God. God forgives us, rather, that we might walk humbly before Him in reverent fear and humble worship. This is a great help to us in ascending out of the depths. 
to realize, remember, and reflect upon the truth that our greatest dilemma has already been resolved. Our deepest need has been met. Our greatest fear has been eliminated. Without a doubt, our greatest dilemma, our deepest need, and our greatest fear all revolve around the truth that God is holy and we are not. We're all sinners before Him, unworthy to stand in His presence. But He has resolved that dilemma. He has met that deepest need, and He has eliminated that greatest fear by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place and take our guilt on the cross. Jesus ascended to the very depths by rising to the cross. Jesus descended to the very depths of Sheol, death, the grave. So that on the third day as He rose from the dead in the depths, we might rise with Him in victory, glory, and hope. Put your troubles, believer, into perspective. Count your blessings. Remember your former condition in hopeless guilt and your present position of forgiveness in Christ. And your spirits may well begin to ascend from the deep. A fourth help. Wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord, trusting in the certain promise of His Word. Verses 5 and 6. The psalmist says, I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait in His Word. Do I hope? My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. Knowing with certainty and assurance that our sins are forgiven is certainly helpful in buoying our souls out of the depths. But there may still be things that weigh us down. Circumstances that seem overwhelming and insurmountable. We pray and we cry out to God, but there seems to be no relief. What should we do? The psalmist here tells us, wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Nobody likes to wait. I saw you guys in line for donuts today. Nobody likes to wait. We don't like waiting. We're an immediate culture. Immediate gratification. Waiting seems like an annoyance. What is this waiting? Well, waiting is not just filling time or killing time. It's not filling our lives with distractions. It's not like the waiting of a waiting room where you're flipping through the pages of field and stream waiting for the dentist to call your name. No one does that anymore. You scroll through your phone, sorry. This is a different kind of waiting. Waiting on the Lord is resting in Him. It is looking to Him. It is seeking Him actively. It is trusting in Him while we wait. It is waiting with a hopeful expectation. 
Lamentations 3, 25 and 26 says this, The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the person who seeks Him. See, those are in parallel. Waiting and seeking go together. It's not passive. It's an active waiting. It's a looking unto the Lord. While we wait, we place our hope in the Lord's Word. In the Word of His promise. It is the Word of God and the promises He's given us contained therein. Promises like this that help us to wait. I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Nothing is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. No one and nothing is able to snatch us out of the Father's hand or out of Jesus' hand. My grace is sufficient for you. Call on me and I will hear you. The good work that He began in us, He will complete until the day of Christ Jesus and all things are working together for our good. These are but a few of the great and precious promises that are ours in Jesus Christ contained in His Word intended to help us to wait. So we need to anchor all of our waiting and all of our hope in the good and certain promises of God. Look at verse 6. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, indeed more than the watchman for the morning. Notice that repeated emphasis. A watchman who's a guard of a city or perhaps a guard over a sheep pen. A night watchman who's to guard the city at night. It's a pretty stressful job. Surrounded by darkness and silence, the watchman has to remain vigilant in case there is a threat against the city or against the herd. The only thing that brings relief is the dawn that sweeps away the darkness and removes all of the unseen possible threats. So the watchman's best friend is sunrise. Right? You can't wait for it to come. The watchman longs for sunrise. The watchman can't wait until dawn. And even so, we wait for the Lord with eager anticipation that that though the night seems long and at times never ending, it won't last forever. The light, the sunrise of God's presence and God's promise will soon dawn again. In the depths of sorrow or anguish, we wait on the Lord in hope-filled expectation that He will keep all of His promises. And finally this morning, a final help is to call yourself and to call others to hope in the Lord's loving kindness and abundant redemption. Verses 7 and 8. Here in verse 7, the psalmist shifts from the first person to the third person, from talking about himself to talking about the nation of Israel as God's chosen people. O Israel, hope in the Lord, For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with Him is abundant redemption, and He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. 
Here in verse 7, the psalmist is calling the nation, his nation, God's nation, God's people, to hope in Yahweh, the God who has graciously entered into covenant with them, the God who will not break his promises. And I want you to see three descriptions of God here that help to build our hope in the Lord. Three reasons within this point to wait and hope in the Lord. First of all, because He's a God of loving kindness. He's a God of chesed. Loyal love. God's loyal covenant love. Unfailing faithfulness. God is rock solid and can be depended upon. We can wait and hope because our God is lovingly trustworthy. He's a God of loyal covenant love. Unfailing love. Next, we can wait and hope in the Lord because He's a God of abundant redemption. He's bought our freedom. With the Lord there is loving kindness and with Him is abundant redemption. To redeem someone is to buy them out of slavery. It's to purchase the price of their freedom. It is to pay the price of their sin and to make atonement and provide forgiveness of guilt. Notice that he says his redemption of us is abundant. It is great. It is very great. Powerful enough to redeem us from our many sins. I don't know what you've done. I don't know how your ledger book looks probably like mine, full of hash marks. But no number of hash marks is enough to not be forgiven. No amount of sin in your life or mine is so great that it's beyond the Lord's reach of redemption. Our sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. We sing it all the time, and it's true. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. That's our God, a God who abundantly redeems and abundantly pardons. A God whose grace is greater than all our sins. And then we see that God is a God who redeems us from all our sin. God will redeem Israel from all his sins. God's redemption is so great, so abundant, that it is able to cover all of our sins. And again, this is not just what God does, but it reflects who he is. He is a God of mercy, of long-suffering, of kindness, of grace, of forgiveness and redemption. So there's abundant reason to wait on the Lord and to hope in Him. So when you find yourselves in the depths, cry out to God. And remember, He's already rescued you from the greatest peril you will ever face. And that is His own just wrath against sin. And He's done so by sending His own Son, Jesus, to die in your place. And from this foundation of grace and mercy and redemption, 
and forgiveness, realize that He will never abandon you in the depths to the deep. Romans 8.32 says this, He, God, who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? He's already given you the greatest gift. He won't abandon your soul to the deeps. He never will. He never has. And you can count on that. So rise from the depths in Jesus. Let's pray together. Thank you, Jesus, for not leaving us where our sins had sunk us. We were at the bottom. There was no hope of escape. We did not have the power to swim to the surface, but you came and rescued us. You descended yourself on the cross, dying in our place. You descended to the depths of the earth, to the grave on our behalf. And you captured us and brought us back to the light of day, the light of hope the light of forgiveness. In the midst of sorrow and suffering and anguish which every Christian will face, there is reason for hope. There is cause to wait on the Lord. There is reason even in the midst of it for joy. Grant it to us, Lord. Help us not to stay in the depths, but to rise with you. In Christ Jesus we pray, amen.